0: It is our privilege to bring to you the following message, supported by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. This message was recorded during our normal Sunday morning service times. Pastor Rick Foster is serving as our interim senior pastor here at Rancho Baptist Church. And today we come to the end of our journey in Philippians in Pastor Rick's series, Finding Joy in Our Journey. This is part 16 of this series in a sermon Rick's entitled, Money Matters Matter." turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, and today Rick is looking at verses 10 through 20. Here's Rick.
1: If you have your money clip or wallet with you this morning, I want you to get it out. So gentlemen, I want you to reach into your pocket and get your your wallet out. Women, grab your purse, it may be down by your feet, grab your purse, I want you to get your wallet out and I want you to hold it in your hand. Okay, you got it? Everybody got your wallet out? Got it in your hand like this? Show it to me. I mean, you want to see it. You got it out? Okay. Now, I want you to take a good look at your wallet for a minute. What does this represent? Well, it's a financial tool, okay? So, based on your choices, inside this clip uh, potentially is going to be credit cards. It could be your debit card. It could be, if it's large enough, your checkbook. It could be cash. It represents the way in which you interact with the world based on the way you spend your money. Now, in addition, I can keep it in your hand and look at it. In addition, though, it also represents the money you've earned. In other words, our financial resources dictate and limit our expenditures. At least that's the way it's supposed to work. (laughs) Um, So again, look at your wallet. It's simply a financial tool. It gives expression to our income, it gives expression to our expenses. But as you look at it, could it be that it's much, much more than that? Okay, I want you to look around for a moment. Uh, The people that are around you, I want you to find someone who is not family. And I want you to exchange your wallet or, or that with them. Okay, so find someone who's not family. You're not related to them in any way. And I want you to exchange wallets. You give it to them and they'll give it to you. So I'm going to give you mine. you have yours out? No, no. no you didn't bring it. Oh, someone's not bringing their wallet to church. Over here. What's that? It's a, it's a one-way street over there? Okay. Did you find someone who's not in your family? Okay. did you, did you Have you exchanged it? Wallet with them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whoa. Okay. What just happened to your heart rate? Um, why are some of you anxiously looking at your wallet in that other person's hand and you're not even listening to me right now? Um, because your eyes are glued on 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 where your wallet just went. Okay, how comfortable would you be if, if I said for the next five minutes they can hold it behind their back and you can't see what's going on with your wallet? Or better yet, what if I said... You can keep the exchange until later tonight, and then you can give it back to each other. How comfortable would you be with that? Okay, before I have to call nine one because of some heart attacks, go ahead and exchange, you can exchange your what wallet, your wallets back with with someone else. Um, so, why did your heart rate just suddenly go up? Why did some of you start to sweat? Why did some of you think, why in the world did I choose to come to church this morning? Um, because if our wallet, if, if, if this thing that's in our pocket or in our purse is simply a financial tool to, that expresses our income, expresses our expenditures, then why did we have such an emotional reaction when somebody else's hands were put on it? If the money I earn is just simply, and the money I spend is just simply a financial tool, and yet I react like that, could it be that then that wallet represents something more? Could it be that we've come to see it as an extension of ourselves, an extension of my identity as a person, my sense of worth or significance, or my sense of, of where my security lies. And so that's why, or I guess I should say, is it any wonder that's why then we have such a strong emotional reaction on the inside when somebody else puts their hands on it? See, if the money I earn and the way I want to spend it is the basis of my identity, if it's the measure of value or worth I see in myself, if it gives me some sense of comfort because I see security in it, then that probably explains why we are less than enthusiastic and somewhat skeptical when someone tells us how then we are to be using our money. And Paul recognizes the power of, of the almighty dollar. And that's why he wants us to find joy in our journey in this specific area. And that's why he concludes his letter to the church at Philippi by speaking to that subject which causes us such emotional highs and also can cause us such depressive lows. He wants us to find joy in our finances. But let's be honest about something. Anytime anyone starts to talk to us about our money, we usually have a concern about their motives or about their agenda. I mean, someone has once said the problem with advice is that the person who gives it doesn't have the problem. That's why we're cautious, that's why we're even skeptical. When someone wants to talk to us about the use of our money, because it's our money that's at risk, not theirs. So, what's Paul's agenda? What's Paul's motive? Are his words just a spiritual con game so that he can pad his own bank account? How can I have confidence that what Paul is going to say here will steer me in the right direction and not take me for a sucker? See, those are legitimate concerns to ask. So let's examine his motives. It's found in the very last verse of the passage we're going to look at this morning. Look at chapter 4 in Philippians and verse 20. Paul ends all that we're going to look at this morning with these words. So to our God and Father be glory forever and ever Amen. Notice, Paul's agenda is not for personal gain, but rather it's for the glory of God. He doesn't want anything from the Philippians. He wants something for them. So if we want our finances to honor the Lord, if we want our finances to glorify God in the way we handle them, if we want to take our fiscal, if we want to take, yeah, responsibility, for our fiscal expenditures and income that's worthy of his name, That I think it's really worth then watching closely what Paul says to us about finding joy in this incredibly important area. Now, I want you to, to understand, Paul's not going to pull any punches this morning. He's going to speak directly to the issues of both our income and our expenditures. And what's he going to do? He's going to use his own life as an example. He's been doing that all through, the, all through this, this book. He's going to do it again. But understand something. Grasping economic theory will not bring you joy. Instead, Paul says, I want to clarify the key economic attitudes that will bring us joy. He begins on the income side. And he starts by giving us a motive check on the finances we get. Verse 10 to verse 13. How can we have joy in our finances and our attitude be right about our income? Well, what attitudes? Paul says there's two. First, Paul challenges us to ask ourselves, am I receiving it with gratitude? Look at verse 10. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Now, you were indeed concerned for me but you had no opportunity. Now, remember, remember that Paul has been an itinerant missionary, moving from city to city to city. He traveled all over the Roman world, sharing the good news about Jesus Christ, and planting churches in strategic cities along the Roman interstate system. Now, it was not beneath Paul to use his own tent-making skills to supply for his needs, but when he did that, obviously that took time away from his church planting ministry. So the church at Philippi would send financial support to keep Paul going. Now again, look at verse 10, look at just the first part of it. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. That word revived is the same word used to describe flowers blossoming in the springtime. In other words, the church had supported him. But then for a while, the support had dropped off. Now their support has blossomed again. And by the way, this is further supported by the next sentence, where Paul says you had no opportunity. Which meant they might have lost contact with Paul. They didn't know where he'd gone. They didn't know where to send the money to. Or maybe they had a financial problem in their own church and for a while did not have the money to be able to send to him. We don't know what it was, but we know something dropped off. So Paul was left in the position of counting on others to help, but their funds didn't arrive regularly. What was Paul's Attitude. Notice, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. In other words, once the funds started flowing again, gratitude was his attitude, and joy will come as we cultivate an attitude of gratitude for our income. But if, again, if we're honest, most of us do not have a whole lot of gratitude for our income. Why? Because our gratitude is blunted out of a desperate desire that we could have more. George Barna did some research just a few years ago that showed that regardless of a person's income, the average American believed that they would be happy if they only had $25,000 more of income a year regardless of the income they were having. They just wanted $25,000 more. In other words, all of us share something inside that we just want a little bit more. (laughs) The practicality of that is that then we don't tend to be grateful for the income we do receive. We don't regularly give thanks to God for our paycheck. Instead, our tendency, anyway, is to grumble, murmur, and wish we had more. So can I can I make a suggestion for you to think about? And that is, if you're struggling to be grateful, the place to start is asking God to change your heart about this. And then do something to begin to cultivate that attitude of gratitude. For example, when you check your bank balance at that time of the month, when you know typically that's when your paycheck hits your bank account, and it's it's deposited, whether it's from your company, whether it's your retirement check, when you see it there, stop right then, offer up a prayer of thanks and say, God, thank you for providing for me for another month. Or maybe if you're in sales, once the contract is signed, send a note of thanks to your customer saying thank you for the privilege of serving them in their purchase. In other words, Things like that can help you. Instead of having a focus on what your income does not allow you to have, you begin to focus on all the things it does allow you to have. In fact, why don't this afternoon take out a piece of paper? If you're married, do it together. If you're single, do it on your own and write down all the things that are being covered by your income, your housing, your transportation, the food, the air conditioning, the water that's coming out of the tap. Just start listing all the things that it does supply and look at it and say, God, thank you. See the first motive check? Right out of Paul's own life. Is to ask, am I receiving it with gratitude? Now look where Paul goes next. There's a second one. He wants us to ask, not only am I receiving it with gratitude, but starting in verse 11, am I learning contentment? Ooh, look at verse 11. Paul says, not that I am speaking of being in need... For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now, what is contentment? Well, interesting, the Greeks, prior to the New Testament being written in what's called Koine Greek, back in when it was called classical Greek, they used this word that we have contentment here in front of us to describe an internal self-sufficiency. In other words, they saw it as an internal strength that did not need anything external. Now, in the Koine language, though, it began to describe someone who had a calm acceptance of life's pressures without a reliance on external factors to keep them calm. So, contentment, as we read it here, or I should say a contented person, as we read it here, lives above their circumstances. A contented person does not base their attitude or perspective or mood on what they do not have. They enjoy an inner satisfaction with life regardless of their external situation. And by the way, this fits in perfectly with where we were were last week when Paul was talking about peace. Remember last week? The world says you can have peace only in the absence of conflict or only if circumstances are going your way. But God, God can give a peace in the midst of conflict and when, con- when circumstances aren't going well for us. So likewise, contentment isn't having everything we want. It's a satisfaction regardless of what we have. Contentment. Now look at verse 12 and verse 13. He continues with this. Now I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Okay, now stop right there. Let's make some very important observations here. Notice in verse 11 and in verse 12, Paul mentions contentment is learned. Notes that. And the word learned means to grow accustomed to by experience. Lucy and I have had to learn to live in Temecula in our first year. We've had to learn during the summers that some days are going to be 89, and the next day it's going to be 108. It all depends upon which way the wind is blowing. I've also had to learn how to live in Chicago during the winter, just to learn how to live with sub-zero temperatures, gray skies, and biting wind. (laughs) What's Paul trying to tell us? He's saying that through the school of life, he has learned by experience to be content when economically life is going well for him and when economically life is tough for him. Folks, contentment is not an automatic spiritual gift. We develop it through the education life gives us. Just want you to notice, contentment is learned. Second observation from these verses... Notice that contentment can handle any direction that life takes. Did you notice here in Paul's words, he he has learned to be content when brought low and when things abound. Notice the movement. The movement is from bad to better. But then look at the direction. He also says in verse 12, he's learned to be content when facing plenty or hunger, abundance or need. That's the opposite direction. It's when financially it goes from better to bad. So it doesn't matter which direction, Paul says, I can be content. Third observation, look at verse 12. Paul says there is a secret to learning contentment. What's that secret? Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. (laughs) Contentment in life, specifically with our finances, will only be learned if it's based on God's strengthening of us. Our contentment is not based on our own ability to be self-sufficient, it's based on our total dependency upon God. So regardless of which way or which direction our finances are headed at the moment, our ability to handle wealth or poverty To move from affluence back down to a meager income or go back the other direction comes from our daily dependency upon Christ to give us the strength to be content. Only Jesus Christ can deliver us from being dependent upon things or upon our circumstances, financially especially, turning out well. Only Christ can give us the eternal, internal strength to adjust to the circumstances of life, up or back down, and not be shaken by it. So listen to me carefully. Contentment is not having sufficient means. It's having a sufficient Savior. There's the key. What are the attitude or motive checks on the finances we get? Paul says it's gratitude and it's contentment. Now he moves to the second area. He shifts his attention to the other side of the balance sheet to talk about our attitude in the area of our expenses. So Paul helps us here with the motive check on the finances we give, verse 14 to verse 19. Now, to be accurate here, Paul is not going to speak about our general expenses, but probably that one area that makes most all of us kind of tighten up on the inside, and that is the specific expense expense of giving of our finances to the work of the Lord. See, there's one point during the worship service when some, some here become very nervous. Um, it's that point when the ushers are invited forward to take the offering. And when the offering socks start being passed up, up and down the row, some get sweaty hands, some, some get nervous, some start shuffling in their seats, some feel like the gaze of the usher down their row is the watchful eye of God himself and the offering sock becomes like a hot potato they can't wait to get it out of their hands. And Paul wants to reduce our nervousness about this. He wants everyone to see the importance of our giving and to experience joy, sincere joy in the act of our giving to the Lord. So he mentions three Essential attitudes that will bring that joy. First, he wants us to give out of the desire to form a partnership. Look at verse 14 and verse 15. Paul says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians know, yourselves know, that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. In these two verses, Paul describes the financial gift that he received from the church at Philippi as a sharing with him and as a partnership with him. And in both those cases, he's using the exact same Greek word. It's the Greek word koinonia, which means Fellowship. In other words, even though the believers there in Philippi were separated from Paul by hundreds of miles, they had become partners with him. And that means our giving of our finances to the Lord is an an extension of you to partner with others in the expanding work of the kingdom of God in this generation. We can have an impact for Christ here in this community and around the world by that which we give. Now, part of giving as a partnership includes the idea of giving when I don't directly benefit from it. In other words, the gifts sent by the church at Philippi to Paul, it didn't benefit them. In other words, it didn't pay for the lights, it didn't pay for their air conditioning. Well, they didn't have air conditioning. uh, All their salaries. In other words, the benefit went to others It was a real gift of faith. Same concept also works here at Rancho Baptist. For our missionaries that we support around the world, I mean, we may never know, we may never hear of the impact that they are making, but I think it's over 20%, am I right, Shane? Over 20% of our budget of our giving goes to missions. We don't benefit from it here. They do. It makes it possible for them to be where we can't be. They're an extension of us, and so we are partners together with them in the Great Commission where they're taking and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ as part of the, as part of the Great Commission in places all around the world. So Paul says this is one of the first motive checks on, on the finances we give is desire to form partnerships. Partnerships. Now look at the second motive, starting in verse 17. The second motive is the desire for eternal gain. Verse 17. Paul says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. See, Paul wants to make sure that he doesn't come across as self-serving. So what does he do? He uses words there in verse 17 that describe God as a heavenly banker. And the gifts given here on earth are building, and God's making sure they're building, an account for us in heaven. So our so eternal wards can be built by the use of temporal funds. I mean, after all, funeral hearths are not designed to pull U-Haul trailers. We cannot take it with us, but we can send it on ahead of us. We can gain in heaven. By the way we spend our money on earth. And Paul wants our account in heaven to grow by the gifts of faith that we give now. Now again, we may never know how our gift is used after we give it. That may be a problem for you, but you know that's no problem for God. We can know that God is aware of our gift and that he has credited credited it, to our spiritual account in heaven. He is a banker in that way. Desire to form partnerships, the desire for eternal gain. Notice how Paul finishes by describing a third motive check on our giving. Verse 18 and verse 19, it's the desire to worship. Look at verse 18. I have received full payment and more, I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now, did you notice something in verse 18? The imagery that Paul uses to describe that gift from this church, it's the picture of the Old Testament sacrificial system. In other words, our financial giving... As Paul says, is like a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. That's what the Old Testament sacrifice, this is what he's describing here. So our giving may end up supplying a salary for someone somewhere. It may pay the utilities somewhere. It may purchase curriculum somewhere. It may support a missionary somewhere. But God sees our act, our gift as an act of worship. To him. That's why I think it's very appropriate that our offering is taken as part of the worship service, because that's what we're here to do—to worship. It is a very special act. It's not an afterthought. It's not something we do before you, you head out the doors. It's a powerful part of why we gather. I encourage you to be thoughtful about how you can encourage perceiving, seeing and perceiving your giving as an act of worship to God? Let me, let me just be suggestive of a couple areas. This, I'm not trying to lay down any law here. I'm just saying just think about stuff like this. For example, many here give to the Lord in ways that don't flow through the budget of this church. In other words. It's fine that you give directly to other Christian organizations or or other missionaries that are not part of RBC. And it's fine. But let me suggest that you still see that as an act of worship, for example. What about the possibility that after you write that check and you put it in the envelope and and you, you seal it and stamp it, how about bringing it with you to church on the next Sunday morning and as an act of worship, put it into the offering sock? Our staff, if they find a stamped envelope inside, hey, they'll just just put it in the mail for you. But the idea is you're seeing as part of your giving to the Lord. Or here's another one for the younger generation that really doesn't use checks anymore, just uses a debit card. Okay, A little more creative here, you may have to be, but that's fine. But how can you make that online giving an act of worship and not just a financial transaction? Could you somehow decide, okay, I'm going to do my financial giving on a Sunday, maybe Sunday morning, just before I go to church, uh, just after I go to church, but do it on a Sunday, and as you make that transaction online, you stop in the middle of it and say, Lord, I, I, this is part of my worship to you as part of my giving, wherever that money goes online. Again, I'm just being suggestive here. I'm just trying to give you creative ideas to develop the or cultivate the attitude of worship in your giving. See, when our giving is motivated motivated to be a partner with others, to see an eternal reward, and to worship our Heavenly Father, look at the promise we're given in verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So as we take... The finances we have, and we give some of it towards the Lord's work, God promises in turn to meet our needs. Now, look carefully at that. The promise relates to our needs, not our wants. God knows what I need. He is very, very aware of it. Folks, we cannot outgive our God. It's impossible to do. Back in 1928, a group of the world's most successful financiers met at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago. Now, collectively, these, these, these tycoons that met controlled more wealth at that time than was in the U.S. Treasury. And for years, newspapers and magazines had been printing their success stories and urging the youth of the United States to follow their example. 25 years later, where were each of these men? Let me go down the list. The president of the largest independent steel company, Charles Schwab, at that time, 25 years later, was living on borrowed money the last five of years, uh, five years of his life, and he died broke. The greatest wheat speculator at that time, Arthur Cutton, died abroad, insolvent. The president of the New York Stock Exchange, Richard Whitney, was serving a term in prison for fraud. The member, one of the members of the president's cabinet, Albert Fall, was pardoned from prison because he was so sick they let him go home to die. The greatest bear in Wall Street at that time, Jesse Livermore, had committed suicide. The president of the Bank of International Settlements, Leon Frazier, also had committed suicide. And the head of the world's greatest monopoly, Ivor Drugger, had also committed suicide. All of these men had made an enormous amount of money. But obviously something was amiss with the way they were holding on to their wallet. Something was amiss in their heart attitude towards their income and their expenses. Folks, money matters matter. And that's why Paul's words here at the end of Philippians 4, as we conclude our study in this wonderful little book, it can make a world of difference, not just to financial tycoons, but to us common folk. (laughs) We can experience great joy. Regardless of how much we have, if on the income side, we cultivate gratitude and contentment, and if on the expense side, we seek to use our money to build partnerships, to build that eternal account, and to increase our sense of worship by what we give. Money matters. Matters. Let's pray. Father, this is a tender area for so many of us, and I'm just thankful that Paul's words come because he wants Jesus Christ and God, his Father, to be glorified forever and ever. Father, may that be our motive, too. Father, we struggle with joy here. We're honest about that. We struggle with joy here. So, Father, may we take Paul's words to heart as coming directly from your heart to ours this morning. Father, may it change our whole perspective about the way we hold on to our wallets. Father, that's our prayer. In the name of the God that we cannot outgive, and who literally, by your work, you've shown us how to give generously in all situations. Father, it is in your name we pray. Amen.
0: Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.RanchoBaptistChurch.org That's www.RanchoBaptistChurch.org Have a great day in the Lord and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.